The Old Testament reading is from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 40. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject the descendants of Israel because of all they have done declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city will be rebuilt for me from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will stretch from there straight to the hill of Garib and then turn to Goa, the whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown, and all the terraces out to the Kidron Valley on the east as far as the corner of the horse gate will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished." The word of the Lord. Well, it's great to be here with all of you. It looks like um, last few weeks we've drifted into our summer attendance dynamic, but you guys are all here. So instead of being at the beach or the mountain, uh, you're here. You chose the right thing. So. Now you get to feel superior for the rest of the week. That's one of the many services we provide to you here at InTown. We are going through Jeremiah, if you haven't been with us, and this uh, morning we're looking at chapter 31, or the last part of chapter 31, one of the most consequential chapters in uh, the book of Jeremiah, and really for in the prophets and in the Old Testament, very transitional chapter. And as we look at it, um, let me pray for us as we get started. Lord, we thank you that though we were exiles, that you rescued us. There was a hope that our future didn't have to be cut off because of our wayward hearts and our sinful lives. Would you dry the tears that we weep in our lives over the brokenness of our world Let us see our tears being dried because your son wept the bitterest of all tears. Your son was cast out so that we can know that you will bring us in. And we pray that you would help us to live the kinds of lives that go along with that knowledge, that we would live out of the gospel and out of his life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It always seems like there is a light bulb out in my house somewhere, and I try to order the big packages, but then I always run out, and I have to order new ones. And even though we've been trying to buy the LED bulbs that 
they're supposed to last for like seven years and they're more expensive. They don't. Uh, you just pay more money. Some of them do, I guess, but maybe the ones I, I'm buying are the wrong ones, but they go out after nine months, 12 months. But we know that they can make a bulb that could last longer. There's a bulb that is glowing right now that's been glowing for 115 years in California. And you can log onto a website that refreshes every 30 seconds that just has a frame of that bulb. I don't know why you would do that. It's kind of boring, but it's there. And if you want to be the person that is present when it actually finally goes out, you can have that website open. 115 years this light has been burning. There's also the Beverly Clock in New Zealand, which hasn't been wound since 1864, and it's still ticking and still telling time. There's a guy in England who owns the world's longest working vacuum, and after 114 years, it still sucks. (laughs) That was just too easy. Sorry. We live in a world of planned obsolescence, and the manufacturers don't even have to make their products stop working at a certain time. They just have to make something new. You don't have to replace it because it no longer works. They just offer you a new model, and now the new one is just slightly older, slightly slower, slightly smaller, and so we want the new one. We want the bigger thing. There's rumor sites that are devoted to what's next with Apple, particularly the iPhone, and it's not supposed to be out until the fall, but the rumor sites are full of speculation, whether it will be revolutionary or just evolutionary. But reality is it doesn't matter because we're going to buy it anyway because it's new. Now, we're not used to talking about things that are new as we talk about religion. Religion is supposed to be old. It's supposed to be ancient. It's why it speaks to us. It's been trusted for so many years. But the idea of newness is something that's very central to the Bible, something that's central to Christianity, new wineskins, new mercies, new life, new songs, and the new covenant. Israel needed something new. They were totally, radically stuck in exile. They needed, first of all, a new aperture in which to see the world differently, to see their story not just in its stuckness, but through an irrevocable promise that meant despite their circumstances that their story was still going somewhere. Newness in their situation was possible because of something that was very, very old. And when we're stuck, we're stuck emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, aren't we on the lookout for some word, some voice, some new insight that helps us imagine a future that looks different than our stuckness? looks different than where we are now, something that opens up an aperture to the future. There's anxiety, however, in that in-between state, even if we can see it. It's not here. It's not present. We want newness now. And we're worried that that newness won't come, 
if maybe we're believers, it won't eventually come, but we believe it's coming at some point, but maybe not for us. Or there's anxiety if we're still asking questions about what is true, what is real, what is our spirituality. We're worried that maybe there is no new word, that this is all we have, and we're stuck with our resources to get us out of this mess. The poet Christian Wyman refers to the society that lives in that state where we're longing for something new, but it's not here yet, and we don't know if and when it's going to come, and he calls that anxious condition a hive of nerves. And he says, Christ speaks in stories as a way of preparing his followers to stake their lives on a story. Because existence is not a puzzle to be solved, but it's a narrative to be inherited. Existence is not a puzzle to be solved, but it's a narrative to be inherited and embodied. I love that. We are storytelling animals, as Jonathan Gottschall says. And God is a storytelling God. And he tells a big story about the future. Israel had been a a nation, a people, with a story. They lived in relationship with the one true God. That was their story, and he was with them and for them. Who in verse 35, this God appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night. It's a pretty good deal to have a friend like that. If that God is for you, that's a pretty good life. He had placed that God who controls the stars and the setting of the moon and the sun. He had placed his love upon them. He had rescued them from Egypt. He had built them into a national power. But now they're stuck. They've been carted off to Babylonian exile, and their story's over, done. Where is God now? The only thing that they could think to hope for is that maybe we'll get to go back. Maybe God will show up and we will get taken out of Babylon and we'll get to go back to our homeland. The problem with that, if that's all that they're hoping for, is that that's not new. That's just the old story in a new place. It's just reinserting them back into the very place that they got into trouble to begin with. This new covenant is a new type of relationship, a new promise that's rooted in something that's very old. You see, the promise is that they're going back, but they're going back into something that is very new. Now, what does Jeremiah mean here by this term new covenant? It's the only place in the Old Testament that uses this terminology, new covenant. But you see the concept, you see the idea all over the place, particularly in prophetic literature, that God is telling a story that has a new chapter that's yet to unfold. We see this here in Jeremiah. We see it in Ezekiel 11 and 36. We see it in Joel 2, that something remarkable is coming for you. Now, if we were in Sunday school right now instead of 
church, big church as we called it in the Baptist church, and we asked what the new covenant was, what would the answer be in Sunday school? Anyone know? Come on, the answer is always Jesus in Sunday school. (laughs) Who parted the Red Sea? Jesus. You're always safe. Tell your kids that. But it's not that simple, really, because the new covenant is not identified totally with the New Testament, and the old covenant is not synonymous with the Old Testament. We need to be careful not to overread and overhear what is happening in the newness with our Christian ears. It doesn't mean we've been in a season of law and now we're moving into a season of gospel. There is discontinuity and there's continuity. It's a new chapter, but it's the same story and it's the same God. So let's look at just three things. These are not three main sermon points, it's three things to help us understand what this new covenant is. First of all, there's a new awareness of God's sovereignty. There's a new location of God's law. And then there's a new experience of God's forgiveness. So first of all, a new awareness of God's sovereignty. This comes by understanding that despite their recalcitrant hearts, God will rescue them again. He's done it before. And that's really the story that they've always inhabited, you see, continuity. But it's a story that they've taken for granted. And it's only in recognizing, again, the nonetheless, the nevertheless, God will come. Despite your recalcitrant heart, despite your sin, God will show up again. In that, there is newness. There's a newness of experience. You see, they're powerless nationally, spiritually, physically. They are a vassal state of a more powerful state. They are totally and radically stuck in their circumstances. They need the sovereign power of God to get them unstuck. But there's a lot of space for anxiety in that hope that God is sovereign that he can be powerful enough. Because what if he's sovereign and he's angry? What if he's sovereign and at the seat of his character is wrath? Well, it'd probably be better just to stay in Babylon. They're slaves, but at least they are safe. If God is sovereign and he's coming in anger because of your sin, then watch out. You probably shouldn't hope for that future. An angry God would be far, far worse. Now, if we've been reading since Genesis, any reader would think that God has got to be exhausted by this story. God has got to be finally done with these people. They've tried his patience for so long. This has got to be it. Story over. Something that is completely new that leaves them behind. But instead, what do we read? We read, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 
chose Israel at their worst for as long as could be imagined. It's a long book. And the Old Testament is a long book. And it tells over and over of the story of God moving in love towards this people. And they say, eh, thanks for the temple, thanks for the law, thanks for all of these things, thanks for protection, but we got it from here. Jeremiah shows them at their worst, and then he shows God at God's best, at his nevertheless. Because God is sovereign and he's good, because he's powerful and he's loving, there is reason for hope in their story. The one whose sovereignty stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. In verse 35, that God stirs up not his anger and not his wrath, but he stirs up his love on behalf of his stuck people. There's a new awareness of God's sovereignty. But this new covenant also involves a new location of God's law. Did you catch that as Jessica read? This is the covenant I will make. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it. I will inscribe it on their hearts. There's something new about the location of the law, where it used to be primarily externalized, It was represented in tablets. It was represented in a temple. It was represented in sacrifice, in how people went about their life. Now it will be internalized. It will be inscribed on their heart. A covenant is sort of like a treaty. It outlines responsibilities between greater and lesser powers. It normally took place in a treaty form, what they would call a suzerain vassal treaty where a king would defeat another nation, and then he would get to outline outline the terms. The vassal state had very little input. He takes their land, he defeats them, he takes their women, and here's how you are to obey. And if you obey, I will protect you. Sounds very much like, uh, uh, like the mob. And it's true to some degree because the vassal state didn't have a very good negotiating position. The treaties were very one-sided. Now, some kings, some suzerains were more benevolent than others, but the one thing that you couldn't do, no matter how good the king was, a vassal could not defy the king because that undercut his honor. And in a shame culture, that was a no-no. Israel's covenant responsibilities was that they were supposed to follow God's law, not as an attainment of his life, not as an attainment of his blessing, but to live into it, to experience it. That was their, response, their, that, their, that was their responsibility. They were to love God, and they were to love the neighbor, their neighbor, especially the vulnerable. Now, it was a whole lot more complicated than that. You've read the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've thumbed through Leviticus. Most of us haven't read it. But the law was very detailed and exacting. But the thing is, Israel couldn't even follow those two, loving God and loving their neighbor. Jeremiah tells us, using various terms, that they had broken, they had transgressed, 
They had not remembered. They had abandoned the covenant. But they didn't die. The vassal defies the king, and he doesn't wipe them out. He allows them to live in the circumstances that their behavior brings about. But he doesn't kill them in his wrath. They are not abandoned. What does God say? He says, well, let's try something different. It's like when you get to a place, if you have children, and you're stuck. You've done everything the book has told you to do, and it's not working. And instead of just yelling more loudly, you think, let's try something different. Let's try a different approach. Now, first of all, allowing them to live is different in that context. But despite the fact that they are serial offenders, he says not only will he get them out of this mess and get them home, but here's the kicker. They're not to follow the law because they are a conquered people. They are to follow the law because they are a rescued people. They're to follow the law not to attain his goodness. They're to follow the law to experience it, to live into the good life that he wants for them. Do you see the difference? They're to follow God by choice and not by external compulsion. And that's the difference in a covenant and a treaty because God's covenant is a relationship of mutual fidelity. And it's written not based on the differential of power that exists between the two parties, but it's written based upon God's love, upon the foundation of His eternal, everlasting love. That's what's at the base of the new covenant. They are to receive God's love. And in receiving it, in God's power, He makes it internalized. They will then seek to obey. So the leverage here is asking God to invade, to infiltrate our hearts with His law, with the life that He wants to give us, to change our compass towards that, not just to try harder, not just to read more and try to come up with more applications, but it is to follow God's law because of His grace being at work in us. So third and final thing, a new awareness of God's sovereignty and now a new, a new what was the second one? Anyone remember? I forgot already. It's in my notes somewhere. We'll come back to it. The one I was just talking about. Thanks, Pete. New location of God's law. And now, I shouldn't have tried to review them. You would have just thought I knew them all new experience of God's forgiveness. Now, this is not to say God's forgiveness that is offered now on completely different terms. Up until now, the terms of forgiveness had been law fulfillment. That's how you get God's blessing and good things happen. You obey the law. And there's certainly verses in the Old Testament that kind of lead to that conclusion. And incidentally, this is how many of the Reformers sort of read this New Covenant passage. Calvin, Luther, Beza, they saw a little bit too much discontinuity between the Old 
and the new. That the old was primarily works-oriented and the new is grace-oriented or law and gospel. And they use that discontinuity to then read that into their discussions with Catholicism as if the Jews were, Judaism was a religion of works and Catholicism is religion of works. Now we are the ones who have discovered the religion of grace. It's not that simple. There is, you see, law in the New Testament. Repent, believe. And there's also gospel, of course, because Jesus comes and he is the sacrificial, the sac- uh, atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's forgiveness, there's good news. What God is offering here to these people and everyone after is a new experience of forgiveness, which has always been on offer. But there's a new unconditionality to it. There's a new radicality to it. God's grace always outruns and exhausts our sin. The newness of it might lie in their recognition that they never ran the risk of being left by Him in the first place. They were never truly stuck in exile. God had set His love upon them, not because they would eventually follow their calling, not because they would eventually learn to follow the law more fully, They were chosen. His affection, His forgiveness was granted to them because His love is always on the move. His his love was always on offer and always pursuing them. And it's pursued them to the literal ends of the earth that is Babylon. If they will now return, they discover that He never left As Tolstoy has Dolly say to Anna Karenina, I have always loved you. And if one loves anyone, one loves the whole person, just as they are, not as one would like them to be. The law always called them to something greater, but it called them to the life that God wanted to give them not the way that he could then love them. And it's in seeing that that they now have the capacity to follow it internally. His love, you see, is always on the move. It's the clock that won't stop. It's the light that will never go out. God doesn't abandon them. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't abandon humanity to its fate. He pursues. He gives chase. Friends, that's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the Old Testament with all of the confusing parts and all of the quid pro quo. The underlying thread is that God is on the move to people because His love never rests. He is like a man chasing after a woman who has just dumped him. In fact, beyond that, a woman who's had multiple affairs, a woman who's a prostitute, that's the story of Hosea. 
He's like a parent chasing after a wayward child that wants nothing to do with him, and he keeps going after him. God does not abandon the relationship. He doesn't give up. And the story of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is the story of a lover that is on a quest, a God who refuses to give up on His people. Nevertheless, no matter what, nonetheless, God. That's been the story that Jeremiah is telling, a new aperture, a new imagination for a future that doesn't have to be like the present because of the nevertheless of the gospel. Friends, where do you feel stuck this morning? What habit, what pattern of sin do you feel powerless to change? Do you feel right now that this is the time that God is going to give up on me? I've tried His patience one too many times. Where's the heartbreak in your life that you just can't heal, you can't get past, you can't get beyond, and it haunts you and it hurts you? Is there a relationship where the center of gravity is brokenness? It's conflict. It's something that has happened that is between you, that the gravity, the inertia of brokenness and heartache is set in, and it feels too weighty to lift, and you're finally realizing that. Well, I can't promise you this morning a change in circumstances because the story of Israel involved what? It involved Egypt, not for a little while, but for 400 years. It involved wilderness for 40. It involved another exile for over 100. I can't promise you that if you instill these principles that today you will have a new life and everything will change. But I can promise you a different experience of those same circumstances. I can promise you, because of God's love, His nevertheless, that your future does not have to be dictated by how you feel about your present circumstances. God's love is always on the move to people just like you and just like me. He's always on the move to people in situations just like yours. You're no different than anyone else that is sitting here. God is willing to step in. God had sent grace upon grace to Israel. And when that didn't work, He sent Himself. He sent His Son. The newness of the covenant finally is because on his side, his side takes the shape of a cross. Instead of asserting his rights, instead of the conquering king, and therefore he has power to dictate, he certainly does. But instead of doing that, he gives up his rights in self-sacrificial love. And he wants you to step into that other side of the covenant and say, okay, I will take hold of this. And the church, we in town, we are called to assume that cruciform position on behalf of one another and on behalf of the world. 
to assert over and over again God's resolve of love, his resolve of hope, his nevertheless of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us, enable us to be nevertheless people. Wherever we are right now, if we feel stuck in something that just won't seem to leave, we can't get traction, I pray that we would not lose hope. You would change our experience of those very same circumstances, even if our circumstances don't immediately change. We do pray that that would take place too. And God, I pray that as we live as people who have been met with your irrepressible love, that you would help us to live out of that love, to follow you, to obey you, and to move into the world with that same, at least a representation of that irrepressible love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.